and welcome to the Narrow Road Podcast, a place to share the journey of walking with God on the narrow road that leads to life. I hope that you find rest and encouragement here, but above all, the awareness that you're not alone on the way. Hello, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Narrow Road Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Bowyer, and it is my pleasure to be back with you for another episode. Today, we are continuing right along in the life of Jesus. Yesterday, we read Luke chapter 13, and today we will be reading Luke chapter 14. We're going right along on his life. Yesterday, we ended um, with a podcast that I... (laughs) loved the title I came up with, okay? It was Go Tell That Fox because that was the last story in Luke chapter 13 that we would be coming off of to begin Luke chapter 14, obviously. And that was the story where Jesus was spending some time with some Pharisees. They came over to him and were basically like, hey, get out of here. Herod, the Roman leader of the time, is looking for you, and he wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, go and tell that fox, as in that sly, cowardly man, that I'm casting out demons, I'm performing healings, and on the third day, I'll reach my goal. Nevertheless, I am not going to be killed outside of Jerusalem, so whatever you think he's capable of doing, he's not. Go ahead and tell him I will be here until I'm ready not to be, thanks. (laughs) And I love that story. I love Jesus. I love his sass. I love his confidence. I love his, his boldness, his unapologetic might. Um, he, he's just, he's, he's God. (laughs) That's what he is. He is God. He is a B-O-S-S, capital B-O-S-S. He is a boss. He is unapologetically himself. And we are continuing to see over and over and over again where Jesus chooses not to be politically correct, not to fit into the culture, not to bow down to the leaders, the methods, the social, um, you know, the social structures and identity of the day he was god he was here to change the world set the record state uh, straight set the captives free and absolutely no one was going to push him around make him do something different speed up or slow down his process change him in any way, thwart him in any way. Those three years were God's time, and nobody had power over that. And I am so deeply impressed. I'm so deeply impressed. I mean, Jesus, I think I've spent so many years just like wrapped in his loving arms and just looking at him as this like loving, kind being, this deeply compassionate, loving, wants to bear your burden, wants to wipe your tears, wants to rid you of your worries and fears. And he is that. But he is this absolute warrior. And I think that's the thing that drives me nuts when you see so many people disappointed being like, hey, I thought that you were going to come set us free from Rome. Hey, I thought we were going to get a warrior king. I thought the Messiah was going to be a general. And here you are, only have the clothes on your back. 
you're going around, you're hugging people, you're talking to kids, you're healing the sick. Like, this isn't giving me warrior vibes. And yet, when you actually watch both the way he deals with the demonic, but I would argue, even more importantly, the way he deals with the religious spirit, the way he deals with the political officials, the way he deals with the legal officials, the way he deals with the religious officials, I... (laughs) That is war. He is making war on these people for their good as much as for ours. He was a warrior. And the fact that that is lost on the people, the fact that that is missed, the fact that they are only looking at Rome as their oppressor and not at these lawyers, not at these religious officials, not at these uh, varying uh, groups of elites in in and amongst them that they don't understand who the real enemy is and that Jesus is actively making war on them it 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 drives me insane but then i i've always come back every time would i have seen it that way would i have seen it that way but he was a warrior king he was a capital boss he took so many risks And he unapologetically did it because he had complete and total faith in his father that he wouldn't die until his time was up. And he would know when his time was up. So he could play with a little bit of fire because it wasn't time. So I just want to like add that little caveat because I am just every time I'll read these stories, he just blows me away. Not because he's he isn't being kind, cuddly, compassionate Jesus that I have really loved learning about the last five, six years, but it's because he's that and, you know, he's lion and lamb. He isn't exclusively lamb and he isn't exclusively lion, but you can't separate the two. He's both. He's both. And I just like deeply, deeply in awe and respect for the masculine heart of God, the power of Jesus on display through his words as much through his actions. And I think that there is a lot to take away from just how much of a boss he was, especially in a time in the world where people are so afraid of what everyone will think, of cancel culture, of you name it, woke identity politics in the whole. And I'm not trying to get political, but it's just, it is becoming a world where you know, it would be, it's harder and harder, it's getting harder and harder and harder to stand up and speak the truth. And I think perhaps that's just why it's so incredibly refreshing to hear that Jesus did it 2,022 years before it's time. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So I didn't mean for this intro to be that long, but I just wanted to really say that because it that's really one of those things that's been getting me and the whole confronting, the confrontingness of Jesus, which Luke is clearly in love with and wanted to document it every time in every shade of gray. And that's why we're getting this side of him so intensely. But what a side, what a side of God we must see and we must know and we must accept because he's God and we're not. So let's go ahead And dive in now to Luke chapter 14, verse 1. Okay, and as usual, I'm reading out of the Amplified Bible. Starting in verse 1. 
It happened one Sabbath, when he went for a meal at the house of one of the ruling Pharisees, that they were watching him closely and carefully, hoping to entrap him. And there in front of him was a man who had dropsy, or extreme swelling. And Jesus asked the lawyers and the Pharisees, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. Then he took hold of the man and healed him and sent him on his way. Then he said to them, Which one of you, having a son or an ox that falls into a well, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they were unable to reply to this. Now Jesus began telling a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been selecting the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down to eat at the place of honor, since a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by the host. And he who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this man your place, and then in disgrace you proceed to take the last place. But when you are invited, go and sit down to eat at the last place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up higher, and then you will be honored in the presence of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts exalts himself will be humbled before others. And he who habitually humbles himself and keeps a realistic self-view will be exalted. Jesus also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or wealthy neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a banquet or a reception, invite the poor, the disabled, the lame, and the blind. And you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is he who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many guests. And at the dinner hour he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, Come, because everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have purchased a piece of land, and I have to go out and see it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have purchased five yoke of oxen, and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another said, I have recently married a wife, and for that reason I am unable to come. So the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then his master, the head of the household, became angry at the rejections of his invitation, and said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the disabled and the blind and the lame. And the servant, after returning, said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there is still room. Then the master told the servant, Go out into the highways and along the hedges, and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled with guests. For I tell you, not one of those who were invited and declined will taste my dinner. Now large crowds were going along with Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, in the sense of indifference to or relative disregard for them in comparison with his attitude toward God, then he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross, expressing a willingness to endure whatever may come, and follow after me, cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a watchtower for his guards, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to finish it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is unable to finish the building, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, 
saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with ten thousand men to encounter the one who is coming against him with twenty thousand? Or else, if he feels he is not powerful enough, while the other king is still a far distance away, he will send an envoy and ask for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple, who does not carefully consider the cost, and then for my sake give up all of his own possessions." Therefore, salt is good, but if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? If it fit, it is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear and heed my words. All right, so right away we see Jesus back at a Pharisee's house. Healing on the Sabbath. I mean, he keeps doing this. He keeps doing this. And they keep getting mad as if, (laughs) will they ever just like decide to drop it? You know what I mean? Like he's proved that they don't actually have an argument to stand on for why he can't heal on the Sabbath. And he's proved this repeatedly. Um, But I guess maybe that part of him hasn't spread wildly enough. Or perhaps they're still just trying to build up their mountain of evidence against him. Um, whatever the case may be, he heals this man of dropsy, which is a form of extreme swelling. There's an extreme amount of fluid that has been built up in this man's tissues, and he's got just probably a very distorted-looking face and body from extreme swelling throughout his body, so he would not have been someone Jesus could have easily overlooked. It said straight away that he was um, at this Pharisee's house, So this was someone's actual house and that they were watching him very, very closely. Um, No shocker there. They're always looking for him to do something wrong, right? Jesus was under constant observation. People wanted to know what he would do in different situations and they formed their opinions about Jesus and his God based on what they saw. The word that was used here in the Bible for watching is the word used for interested and sinister espionage. Jesus was under strong scrutiny. They watched him as intently as a dog does for a bone. (laughs) And this man with dropsy, because he was in the home of one of the rulers, this man was an invited guest. So some believe that he was invited simply to provoke Jesus into doing something that they could accuse him regarding. Probably the insidious Pharisee had brought this dropsical man to the place, not doubting that our Lord's eye would affect his heart and that he would instantly cure him. And then he could most plausibly accuse him for a breach of the Sabbath. If this were the case, and it is likely, how deep must have been the malice of the Pharisee? Mm-mm-mm. The main issue here was, was it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, as we have talked repeatedly about so far in this podcast through the book of Luke? Um, the issue was not about the healing directly, but about healing on the Sabbath. When Jesus healed the man, his accusers believed that he worked on the Sabbath. He worked. That's the concern. Are you working to do that? When Jesus healed the man, his accusers believed that he worked on the Sabbath and violated God's command, but that wasn't true. 
With this question, Jesus reminded them that there was no command against healing on the Sabbath. Because remember, he looked at them and he said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they just kind of sat there quietly. Jesus never broke the commandments of God, but he often offended man's traditions that surrounded and extended the commandments of God. The commandments of God are enough, and we should never make the traditions of men, even good traditions, equal to the commandments of God. Notably, Jesus' accusers had no answer for this question. And then we notice that there seems to be no ceremony or hocus pocus in the healing ministry of Jesus. He simply did it. And the man was completely well. Additionally, since the man's affliction affected his appearance, it should be understood that the man's appearance immediately transformed, indicating health. This would have been a remarkable miracle. And of course, and I'm reading out of the Enduring Word commentary here, guys. So same as always, same as I always use. Um... Then, of course, Jesus counters their argument with, hey, if you had a son or if you had a donkey or you had anyone fall into a pit, would you not pull them out immediately on the Sabbath? Of course, this is very simple logic. Jesus's logic was simple and impossible to dispute. If it was allowed to help animals on the Sabbath, how much more was it right to heal people who are made in God's image? And he's used these arguments multiple times, we have seen. He doesn't really deviate because sometimes simple is best. (laughs) one reason they could not answer was that in using this analogy jesus appealed to something good in his accusers he's saying you aren't brutal brutal and cruel men you would help your animals in need now extend that same common sense kindness to needy people Hmm. then he also took a took a sort of look around the room and was noticing that people were choosing to try to sit in the best places in the house um, for the meal that was about to happen. And he used it as an opportunity to teach a parable. Um, at the home of the Pharisee, Jesus notices how people strategically place themselves so as to be in the best places, that is, in the places of most honor. In Jesus' day, the seating arrangement at a dinner showed a definite order of prestige or honor. The most honored person sat in a particular seat, the next most honored person in another place, and so on down the line. Jesus said, when you're invited by anyone to a, to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited to come. And he who invited you will have to come to you and say, hey, give place to this man, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. So a wedding party was the most important social occasion in Jewish life at that time. The seating arrangement at the table indicated one's standing in the community. If one takes the most honored place for himself... He may be asked to be removed. The host would rather have someone else sit there. We don't have the same exact customs illustrating social standing by the seating arrangements at a wedding, yet there are constant occasions in modern life where one can display their own sense of self-importance, pride, and high opinions of one's self. Jesus reminded them of the shame that often comes with self-exaltation. When we allow others to prom- to promote and lift us up, then we don't have the same danger of being exposed as someone who exalted himself. Then Jesus encourages us to go and sit in the lowest places so that someone who invites you would have the opportunity to encourage you to come up higher. Then you'll have glory at that time. But whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a very simple thing he's saying. You know, and 
I think what we see here with the Pharisees is they were probably so lost in tradition at that stage that they're not looking at as themselves as, oh, like I'm just exalting myself by choosing this seat. I think there's the part of them that is simply literally being like, I've earned this. I've earned this through my age, through my hard work, through my accomplishments, through who other people say I am. Whatever it is, it starts getting into your head and starting to tell you, oh, I've, I've earned this position. I've earned this seat. And that's where it's tricky because you don't understand you're still self-exalting. But you tell yourself that, no, that's not what this is. Like, I've earned this. And you don't see it for what it is. Pride is so sneaky. You don't often see it for what it is. And it takes someone who doesn't have pride, at least in this current situation. I mean, Jesus doesn't ever have pride. But, you know, it takes anyone coming up to you and kind of pointing out how it looks and what it's actually exposing for oftentimes people who are operating in pride to even see it because it is so deceptive and it's so sneaky. So what Jesus is saying sounds very, very simple, but it could have been revolutionary to these men who, who were kind of wrapped up in, well, no, I'm, I'm not prideful. I've earned this position. That's not pride. That's just hard work. You know, or that's just dedication or that's just, you know, the the hierarchy and the traditions of my day. Give me this seat at this dinner. And Jesus is like, regardless, if you walk into the room and your first thought is like, hey, give me that seat that's mine, then you've missed it. You've missed it. It doesn't matter where you think you deserve to be. It is still always better to choose the low road, the lower seat. And if it be the will of the host or anyone in that environment, let someone else say, hey, what are you doing over here? No, no, no. Let let me bring you where you belong. It's it's just it's it's all about a heart posture. It's super sneaky. It's super sneaky. And it can sneak up on any and all of us. The commentator says we should joyfully embrace the lower praise. The lower place, we aren't filled with such a high opinion of ourselves that we think we don't belong there. If the master of the feast were to raise us to a more prominent place, then it would be all the more satisfying. Especially in Christian service, there is something wonderful about knowing that God has raised you up instead of you raising yourself up to prominence of some sort. Amen. When we seek to take honor to ourselves, we will always be humbled. If not on earth, then for all of eternity. The promise of exaltation for the humble and humiliation for the proud is one ultimately fulfilled in eternity. So go the low road now. (laughs) Right? Go the low road now. Then Jesus goes into a story about, hey, when you're going to give a supper, a supper, a reception of any kind, don't ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors. Don't invite them unless lest they also invite you back and then you're basically repaid. You did them a solid and then they're going to feel obligated to do you a solid. You know, you extended them an invite. They're going to invite you to something fancy they do later. And there you go. You got your repayment. But when you're having a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus spoke this specifically to the man who invited him. Jesus saw that his host chose his guests 
from a sense of exclusion and pride, lacking love for others. Jesus told him to not only ask those who could repay Jesus told him to not only ask those who could repay something to the host. Do not ask is more properly do not habitually ask. It isn't wrong to ever invite your friends, your brothers, and so on, but it is wrong to only invite such people. Mm. Lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. It is wrong to only associate with people who can advance us or give something to us. It is easy for us to limit our friends to a few comfortable, easy people instead of reaching out to others. Jesus here told us to not associate with people only on the basis of what they could do for us. That is self-centered living. We are called to follow Jesus and he showed us others-centered living. There is something wonderful in giving a gift that can never be repaid. This is more some of the more blessing that Jesus spoke of when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. This helps to explain some of the pleasure of God in giving the gift of salvation and blessing to his people. And then he ended that story with, you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This kind of living will cost us something, yet we will be repaid with the full repayment coming at the resurrection of the just. Here again, Jesus shows how important it is to live with an eternal perspective. And then someone who was sitting at the table was listening to him give this um teaching to them and he said blessed is he who shall who shall eat bread in the kingdom of god (laughs) um so still at the dinner that was being given by this pharisee jesus had just spoken strongly he was warning them against traditionalism pride and exclusivity perhaps this is one of those um This person was hoping to break the tension with these words. The man spoke of the goodness and blessedness of the great banquet with the Messiah that was spoken of many times in the Old Testament. And it is known in the New Testament as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So literally, this guy might have just been overcome with excitement. He could have just been trying to ease the tension in the air. We don't know, but Luke documented it. But from that statement, Jesus goes into another parable, another story. And this is the man who has a great supper and has invited many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say those things who were invited. So he sent, uh, he went to his servant and he said, um, go tell my guests that it's time to come. All things are ready now. But they all began to make excuses. I've bought a piece of ground. I need to go see it. Excuse me, I've bought some yoke of oxen. I need to go test them. Please excuse me. I just married my wife. I cannot come. Please excuse me. So Jesus told this parable about a man who had his great, has a great feast, a large banquet, invited many people to come. Normally, this was just the sort of occasion that people would be thrilled to attend and be quite happy to be invited. In an age before the clock, the date of the banquet was announced long before, but the exact time was only announced the very day. This means that many accepted the invitation when it was first given. Yet when the actual time of the banquet came, they were of a different mind. To accept the invitation beforehand and then to refuse it when the day came was a grave insult. By analogy, we can say that God 
has made it so all things are now ready for men to come and receive from him, we come to God and find that he has been ready for us. Central to this parable are the excuses that were offered. The excuses are different, but really are all the same. Excuses are made. They are fashioned for convenience and are clung to in desperation. Hope doesn't begin until excuses end. Excuses are curses. And when you have no excuses left, there will be hope for you, says Spurgeon. The excuses begin to explain why such a wonderful invitation was rejected. This answers an important question asked by many. If Christianity is so true and so good, why don't more embrace it? Why don't more accept the invitation? The first two excuses had to do with material things and were foolish excuses. Only a fool first buys a piece of land and then goes to check it. Only a fool buys ten oxen and is only interested in testing them after the purchase. When we buy something new, we are almost always preoccupied by it. Preoccupation with material things and experiences is a common excuse for not following Jesus. The third excuse had to do with a man who put his family before everything. Sorry, I have a wife now. The best thing we can show to our family is that they are not first in our lives, but that Jesus Christ is. These excuse makers condemned themselves. Their excuses were only a thin veil hiding the fact that they did not want to come. Because of an, ex- because of an excuse is a, excuse me, b- the back of an excuse is a lack of desire. There is no rational reason why someone would not want to be part of this feast. They just didn't want to. And saying, I cannot come, the man intended, as it were, to dismiss the matter. He wished to be understood as having made up his mind, and he was no longer open to argument. He did not parlay. He did not talk. He just said offhand, I want no more persuading. I cannot come, and that settles it. So the servant obviously comes in the story that Jesus is giving them. He's saying, hey, this is the report. The master of the house became very angry. He tells his servants, all right, then go out into the streets quickly. Bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. And the servant goes, okay, master, I've done just as you've said. And there's still room at this banquet. So the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. So when the master of the feast um, must have been surprised at the response that people were not coming, he was certainly angry. It was strange and offensive that so many made excuses when given such a wonderful invitation. So that's kind of what's clearly prompting the story from Jesus was that man's comment of blessed is he who eats bread in the kingdom of God. And he's like, yeah, okay, about that. Uh, About that. (laughs) You say you're so blessed, but hey, think about how many don't actually want to eat in this kingdom. You know, we can espouse these things about like, oh, we're so blessed. But how many people really, really really are in the kingdom and want to be here. And I think that that's what's prompted this story to come out of Jesus's mouth. So if those first invited to the feast refused, there would still be a feast, the master had decided, because he would not prepare a banquet in vain. 
We see that Jesus responded to the man's exclamation, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom, by asking, You admire the messianic banquet, yet are you ready to receive the invitation to come? Will you make excuses? This is an especially relevant question when one considers the sort of people who will also be at the feast, redeemed sinners, the maimed, and the lame, and the blind. The master of the feast was determined that some would enjoy what he had prepared. If those originally invited made excuses, the master commanded his servant to use all persuasion to fill the feast. Jesus said compel to indicate God's great desire to fill his house, and because these wanderers and outcasts needed to be convinced that they were welcomed and compelled by love. So if we are to have many sinners saved, we must go out of our own quiet haunts and go forth into frequented places. We must preach in the street or at the marketplace or on the village green, said Spurgeon. Tragically, Augustine and others used the phrase compel them to come in as a justification to coerce people into Christianity, sometimes using persecution and torture. It was taken as a command to coerce people into the Christian faith. It was used as a defense of the Inquisition, the thumbscrew, the rack, the threat of death and imprisonment, the campaigns against heretics and all those things which are the shame of Christianity. But compel is reflected in the first place, the urgent desire of the master to have an absolutely full house. In the second feeling, that pressure will be needed to overcome the incredulity of country people as to the invitation to them being minced seriously. They would be apt to laugh in the servant's face. And I think that that's really important because they're pointing out that that one sentence, compel them to come into my house, go everywhere and compel them, was so used to brutalize people. It was so misappropriated and misunderstood. When you can understand that what the servant of the house was saying was go out to the people of the countryside. He said, go to the highways and the hedges. He's a way out. And tell them to come to this great feast. Compel them, not in the sense of put pressure, torment them, you know, threaten them with death if they don't come. He's he's trying to say, like, it's pretty unlikely they're not going to understand why they're invited because they're going to be like, hey, I don't know him. Why would he want me in my house? You know, I'm just a poor farmer or whatever their logic might be. It would just be silly. Like, you're not, you can't be serious. Why would he want me to come there? And you compel them by showing them their worth, their love. He genuinely, genuinely wants you to come. Please don't think that this is just, you know, I'm, I'm just pulling your leg here. But that it is, it was not meant to be used for something like the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> if that's not what he was meaning it by. Okay, so let's take a break there. We're nearly now at the end of the chapter. Just the teensiest amount to go. I think the one of the primary messages, though, that we can take from that story about the master of his house throwing this great party and all of his invited guests making excuses not to come, so he turns to the least of these, right? The least of these as his invited guests, and then beyond that, he goes out further and further and further on in the community and in his, his area to get more guests. He's clearly saying he had a group of people he wanted to invite first. They were his invited guests. And I think metaphorically, we can see that as being the Jews, like legit, 
in Jesus's day. He came to seek and save the Jews, but they've turned their backs on him for the most part. Huge percentage of them are like, eh, this, uh, the kingdom you're displaying, Jesus, isn't exactly the one I wanted to be a part of. As we know, they wanted him to be a warrior general saving them from Rome. They wanted him to be fiercely good-looking. They wanted him to be extremely well-dressed and rich. He wasn't fitting the narrative, you know? And so in the end, they're like, uh, I'm not so sure. And now there's these excuses. There's this posturing in their heart that says, I don't really know if I want to be in this club anymore. And so what does Jesus do? He's going out and he's casting out demons and he's investing himself in the sick, the poor, the needy, the maimed, the blind. He's healing them and they're rushing in because they like, hey, yeah, maybe he's not the way I thought the Messiah would be, but um, he healed me, whatever. I'm going with him. But then there's only so many of those people in the world that are going to believe, right? There's only so many people that are blind and maimed and lame and sick. And so then he says, well, you know, there's still room in my house. I'm going out further. And what do you know? He's going out to the Gentiles and he's sending Paul and he's sending his disciples and they're starting to move out further and further and further. So that's his response. Yeah, he came for the Jews first, but he already knew how the Jews were going to treat him. He knew that they were going to follow in their forefathers' footsteps of killing the prophets of God. And it was only going to all the more justify him breaking out now of the, of the locked-in Jewish culture and beginning to bring the breath and voice and word of God out into the open world. And so I think that it's important to recognize that that story is teaching us on a lot of different levels, Jesus's point and purpose and methods. All right. (sighs) So then Jesus says to the great multitude. So at this point, he either has left the house or people are cramming the house or he's or a day or so has passed. All we know is now he's speaking to a great multitude of people. And he turned to them and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life as well. He cannot be my disciple. Jesus clearly spoke about the kind of person who could not be his disciple. The word disciple simply means learner. A disciple is someone who is a student and learner of Jesus. Previously, Jesus said that coming to God was like accepting an invitation. Jesus was careful to add that there is more to being his follower than simply accepting the invitation. Jesus boldly said that the true disciple comes to him without reservation, setting Jesus first. This is what he means by unless you, you know, if you come to me and you don't hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even your own life, you cannot be your disciple. I mean, this is a bold truth he's speaking. He's requiring other relationships to be of lower priority than faithfulness and obedience to Jesus. This was an audacious demand. None of the prophets or apostles asked for such personal commitment and devotion. If Jesus was not and is not God, this would be idolatry and probably madness. But Napoleon, the French ruler, Napoleon understood this principle when he said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. 
Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and this hour millions of men would die for him. Repeatedly in the Bible, we see that Jesus founded a way of love, not hate. Yet Jesus used the strong word hate to show how great the difference must be between our allegiance to Jesus and our allegiance to everyone and everything else. It is only in a comparative sense that this word is used, and not literally hate. And in that way, the term can possibly be used. And to make this very clear, Christ said that we are to hate our own life as well. Okay, so he's saying hate, not in like hate, (laughs) but he's saying you need to be able to so clearly separate your relationship with your family to your relationship with Jesus to to identify them in the proper priority. Normally, being a follower of Jesus makes someone a better and more beloved family member. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't automatically divide families, yet it certainly sometimes does divide, and more so among non-Christian or anti-Christian cultures. The greatest danger of idolatry comes not from what is bad, but from what is good, such as love and family and such as love and family relationships. The greatest threat to the best often comes from the second best. So that's just a word of warning to all of us. You know, I can only imagine if I had children, which I do not, that that would be an all-consuming love. Or um, I would guess as, let me see, what is he saying here? Brothers and sisters. Some people have extremely close relationships with their brothers and their sisters. Some people are absolutely obsessed with their romantic partner, their spouse. I know that I can probably relate to that in a lot of ways. Um But he's saying, hey, I don't care. They're great. I want you to have a great family, but they're not your God. And you have to be able to keep them in the right perspective because I think that that will be one of the biggest places that people can lose sight and fall in the trap of distraction that feels really well-earned and well-justified because you're like, hey, I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm, I'm a wife, I've got these obligations. All these things that you can justify that might pull you away from Jesus. But he said, listen, no. <laughs> You got to understand that that's not my expectation. Then he goes on and he says, he makes it, he's he's doubling down now. So (laughs) he's doubling down. He's like, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We remember that Jesus spoke this to the great multitudes, instructing them on what it meant to be his disciple, especially that it is more than accepting an invitation. Here, Jesus said to the great multitudes something very similar to what he said privately to all of his disciples in Luke chapter 9, that being a follower of Jesus is something like bearing a cross. This probably horrified his listeners. As Jesus spoke these words, everyone knew what he meant. In the Roman world, before a man died on a cross, he had to carry his cross, or at least the horizontal beam of the cross, to the place of execution. When the Romans crucified a criminal, they didn't just hang them on a cross. They first hung a cross on him. Whew. Carrying a cross always led to death on a cross. No one carried a cross for fun. 
The first hearers of Jesus didn't need an explanation of the cross. They knew it was an unrelenting instrument of torture, death, and humiliation. If someone took up his cross, he never came back. It was a one-way journey. Jesus chose the fra- this phrasing instead of saying the cross or a cross when he said his cross. Must take up his cross. The idea is that there is a cross suited to each individual and the one person's experience of the cross may not look just like another person's experience of the cross. The general idea that these words of Jesus about bearing the cross refer to passive submission to all kinds of afflictions like disappointments, pain, sickness, and grief that come upon a man is totally wrong. Only a person who, for the sake of his service, surrenders all self-seeking and abandons all striving after his own interests can be my disciple, is what Jesus meant. And then he says, and come after me. Jesus made it clear that the only one who bore his own cross would follow the life and pattern of Jesus. Jesus here recognized that he would bear his own cross and that he would go before us. This is following Jesus at its simplest. He carried a cross, so his followers carry one as well. He walked to his self-death, so must those who follow him. When Jesus said this, he was on the road to Jerusalem. He knew that he was on the way to the cross, and the crowds were with him. The crowds who were with him thought that he was on his way to an empire. And then he ends it with, you cannot be my disciple unless this is to be done. Jesus made it clear that only cross bearers can be his disciples. Therefore, we sometimes may understand the demands of Jesus when we present. Therefore, we we sometimes may understate the demands of Jesus when we present the gospel. We can give them the impression that coming to Jesus is is only to believe some facts instead of yielding their life. It is possible to be a follower of Jesus without being a disciple, to be a camp follower without being a soldier. And that is the thing. (laughs) As we get to the near end of this chapter, you just see that Jesus is turning up the heat. He's turning up the heat. We already had that one chapter that was called... um, the cold hard truth where Jesus was talking to his disciples where he was saying privately to his disciples what he is now saying publicly to the multitudes of count the cost it is no small thing to be a disciple of Jesus and just as the author of this commentation said therefore sometimes we may understate the demands of Jesus when we present the gospel hmm Call, that's like the understatement of, of all of time. We may sometimes understate the demands of Jesus when we present the gospel. I would say pretty much all the time I've heard the gospel preached, there is an understating of what Jesus expects. There is a massive cost to count to walk with him. And I don't think that that is fully expressed in most pulpits today. I think that we are sold a very different version of the gospel that we end up reading for ourselves after we have made the commitment. And I think that it is very important that we understand Jesus's words and how serious walking with him is and the level of the commitment that it requires um, in order to endure to the end. 
because he says those who endure to the end shall be saved. There's a reason why he uses the word endure. And if you kind of at least know what you're walking into, you, you're jumping in head first. I think we're all compelled by love, no matter how rough it looks, no matter how intense his demands may seem. I think no matter what, we're all side on the dotted line because we're like, yeah, I just love you, God. Thank you so much. But it's still important that we're told, we are actually told of the cost to follow him. Mm. I could do a whole, like literally, I could do innumerable podcasts on that, to be honest. And then finally, Jesus um, gives them this final story where he says, and this is verses 28 to 33, he says, For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who begin, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So first thing we can take away is sit down first and count the cost, Jesus said. In the parable of the tower, Jesus said, sit down and see if you can afford to follow me. Sit down and see if you can afford to refuse my demands. Jesus perhaps alluded to the idea that the work of his kingdom was like building and battle. Each of these are usually more costly than one thinks before beginning. We have a difficult challenge in understanding the com- and communicating the gospel here. There are two extremes to avoid when it says at the end of the story, whichever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be be my disciple. We can never give people the impression that they have to clean up their lives before they come to Jesus. This is like washing up before you take a bath. Yet likewise, we can never give people the impression that Jesus won't want to clean up their lives with their cooperation after they come to him. It is important for every potential disciple, those of the great multitudes that followed and hurt Jesus, to consider the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. Yet those who choose to reject and resist God should count that cost as well. What possible good can come from opposing God? It costs something to be the disciple of Jesus, but it costs more to reject him. Jesus says, forsake all that he has, right? Whoever, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. This ancient Greek phrase had the idea of to say goodbye to. Jesus told us to say goodbye to everything we have and entrust it to Jesus. Then he ends this little passage with salt is good, but if salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dung pile, but men will throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt that loses its saltiness is of no use. A professed believer who, through corruption or assimilation, loses distinctiveness, flavor, or preservative value is of no use as a follower of Jesus. Salt is only useful when it has the nature of salt. A Christian is only useful when he or she has the nature of Christ. Alrighty, that's it. That's the chapter. 
there were so many different things there. But for me, I think the overwhelming sort of messaging that I'm getting is when it came to healing on the Sabbath, heal. Do the work of God regardless of tradition. Do the work of God. Also study the study the ways of God for yourself so you're not so easily pulled around by the weight of the majority who is maybe perhaps completely misinterpreted something the Lord has said. Read the word for yourself. Even when I read these commentary, I mean, sometimes I'm just blown away at the things it teaches me. And sometimes I personally just outright, right, like reject its interpretation of it. <laughs> I mean, I always say that, but I'm personally like, mm, I don't know about that. I feel like I'm not sure I agree with that, but I appreciate it. But I feel like we read the word and we read the word and we read the word and we bring it up to the Lord. And this is how we stay protected because we're following it and searching the scriptures for the heart of God and the divine wisdom and inspiration. And we don't just follow the masses and the crowds who help us interpret how to live and how to be. I think that that's one of the main takeaways I get from Jesus consistently healing on the Sabbath. And then we really see him hitting hard the concept of counting the cost and letting your yes be yes. You know, when he invited people in this in this parable to this dinner and they all came up with their excuses, he is just not interested in the excuses. He wants your yes to be yes, your no to be no, that you would stick with your word. But in order to stick with your word, you must have already counted the cost. Before you agreed to something, you took your time to think about it. Before you came into the kingdom, you took your time to think about it. And for those of us who are in the kingdom, as we spread the gospel, as we share it with people, we need to give them the full gospel. We need to offer them the same information Jesus is offering us. We need to tell them these are his expectations. Hate your mother, father, sister, brother, wife, children. And of course, explain what he means by hate there. But you have to put it out there. Take up your cross and die every day, just like he did. Be willing to forsake all your possessions, all your worldly identity, if he says so. Follow him to the ends of the earth, even if it might mean your death. These are real things he really said and did. And the full gospel includes our mentioning of all of that. Yeah, these are our obligations. These are both our expectations by him and what's expected of us as we are preaching the gospel. It is not fair to only preach that Jesus is going to dry your every tear and bring you into heaven and take all your worries away because that's just not the truth. It is a war. It is a battle. It is a construction site (laughs) walking with Jesus. It requires a hard hat. It's not for the faint of heart, and it's not for the people who, as he said, would put their hand to the plow and then look backwards. It's not made for people who are going to wish that they didn't choose this or who want to go back to their former life. Your yes is huge coming into the kingdom. The demands and expectations of it are very, very real. So are the rewards. But there is sacrifice, there is loss, there is difficulty. It isn't only rainbows and butterflies. And I feel like as Jesus gets closer and closer to his death, the more you're feeling this urgency in his heart and mind to share this truth with 
anyone who will listen now. Yeah, great episode. Great, great chapter. I love Jesus. He's the absolute best. He's incredible. He tells us the truth, no matter how how we feel about it. But we're better for it. We're better for knowing all the truth. Straight up, no chaser. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Narrow Road Podcast. I will be back again tomorrow for another one, and I'm very looking forward to seeing you then. Thank you again, and bye-bye.